When talking about AI models, the very large foundation models get the majority of the spotlight, but I think it's overlooked that there are a lot of people training smaller versions of their models to accomplish specific tasks, which are equally interesting and perhaps even more interesting because they're more commercializable, they're faster, they're smaller, they're cheaper. And one of the more interesting attempts at this is PubMed GPT from Mosaic ML. And this is Naveen Rao of Mosaic ML on the ARK Invest podcast, which is called FYI for your innovation. It's a much smaller model that basically just reads all of PubMed and answers questions very well, apparently. When you go from, from GPT-2 to GPT-3, which was a you know order of magnitude larger in terms of number of parameters, what are the challenges that, that you face as a, you know, as an organization that's trying to train these really large models? You know, it's not, I assume it's not as simple as like going to, you know, Zara and saying, hey, here, here's more data, train a bigger model. Um, what, what are the complexities that the, the companies face when they actually get to do that? Well, okay. So let's talk about specifically that GPT-2 to GPT-3 transition. I mean, you know, when you're the first one doing it, like, you know, all the big labs like OpenAI, um, Deep, DeepMind Lab and Google Brain, all of the, and, and FAIR, you know, they had to invent a lot of the stuff as they went because it just didn't exist. There were no good um, parallelization frameworks. There weren't good, um, you know, uh, orchestration tools. They had to kind of write a lot of this stuff. So that makes it really hard. Uh, once you have some of that down, um, it actually isn't so bad. There, there becomes repeatable patterns of scale. So between GPT-2 to GPT-3, I think that's a lot of what they did was build that repeatable pattern of scale. Now, what are the challenges? So uh, the challenges are that now your data sets start becoming a lot bigger. Now, in terms of just sheer gigabytes, they're not that big. We're talking terabytes of data, which isn't really that big by today's standards. Um, but when you start thinking about what what's in that data, you know, we're talking hundreds of billions of tokens. A token is, call it approximately a third of a word. A hundred billion words is, or hundred billion, uh, yeah, hundred billion words is, you know, a hundred million books, something like that, right? So this is not a small amount of knowledge. This is, this is basically pulling together that amount of data, cleaning it, uh, making it into the right formats is actually not trivial anymore because it just comes from so many different sources. What's really interesting is that uh, by some accounts, we've actually hit almost a limit of what's scrapable, meaning that if I go on the internet, I go on Google and I just try to pull every possible text source I can, I'm running out, <laughs> right? The largest models, the largest chinchilla models were trained with over a trillion tokens. So we've literally hit the limits of everything that's on the internet. I never thought that would, I, that would happen, honestly. I thought that would just be like an infinitely scaling universe, but it's actually hit, we've hit that limit. So uh, what's interesting now is that with the size of models that we can build, these 175 billion parameter models or 500 billion parameter models, we actually have the capacity to represent the internet's worth of data. That's the scale we have here. So how fast is growth going to be? I don't know. It's kind of an open question now. It's interesting looking at like the, the chinchilla scaling paper. It seems like there, there's, you know, in a lot of the models that have been trained that optimize for large number of parameters, there's, there's probably, you could argue they're undertrained in terms of data or under supplied in terms of data. Um, and so if, if, you, if you're starting to run out of data and you want to make the models you know, larger and more performant, like what do you do? Do you, do you um, try to create synthetic data or, or how do you approach that problem? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's an open topic. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what we did with um, uh, PubMed GPT. So this was a project we took on with uh, Stanford Center for Research on Foundational Models. Basically, the task is to take the MedQA evaluation, which is basically the U.S. medical licensing exam. 
Okay, it's what human doctors have to take to be called an MD. And uh, we trained it on PubMed data, which is basically all the primary literature uh, papers from 1970 up to, I think, 2021. And this accounted, this, this amounted to about 50 billion tokens of, of data. So we trained a 2.7 billion parameter model, which is much smaller than GPT-3. But the way we were able to get more performance was actually doing um, multiple passes on the data. And you know you can do some modifications to ordering and things like that, but it actually turns out you can squeeze a lot more out of a 2.7 billion parameter model uh, by, by doing multiple passes. And so that's one strategy. Synthetic data is an interesting concept. I mean, the, 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 the hard part is that you're trying to expose the model to more parts of the distribution, right? You, all, all the nooks and crannies of the data are what you're really trying to find. When you build synthetic data, you're kind of recapitulating the statistics of the data on which it's modeled. So you're not really creating new nooks and crannies necessarily, right? That's not always true when you're using simulation data and things like that, but many of these sort of resampling techniques don't give you new parts of the, of the distribution. So I'm not sure they actually improve model, model performance all that much. But again, still an open topic and there are lots of people coming up with cool techniques around this. So I think it is an area to explore for sure. Yeah, I think one of the other areas that's interesting is um, audio, right? There, there's a lot of audio recording on TV, on podcasts, um, like we're recording now on YouTube videos that you could you know, translate into text and, and possibly use as additional training data. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. On the sort of model size topic, um, do you think we're, it seems like there's this sort of bifurcation in that there are really large models like what will be GPT-4 that are pretty good at like a broad range of tasks versus smaller models that are specialized. How do you think this landscape is going to evolve? Do you think we're going to end up with, you know, sort of like large, really large foundation models for just kind of, you know, general writing assistant tasks and then specialized models to help us answer medical questions? Or do you think there will be some, you know, tilt in either direction? So I, I mean, I'm, I'm personally pretty biased on this. I, I don't see a world where there's one large model owned by one company. It's just not going to happen. Um, because there's no way one company can can imbue the expertise of every domain into one model. Just not possible. I, I envision a world where there's millions of models built on millions of data sets that are experts at many, many different tasks. And um, I think that's actually, there's a lot of advantages to that. It's kind of, you can look at nature and that's kind of how it tends to work. These de decentralized, many shots on goal kind of thing, not like one big shot, right? <laughs> Typically. So there's a few reasons why I believe this. So one is, you know, we talk to customers all the time that are in the enterprise space. Data provenance is super important. It's well known that uh, large language models can re regurgitate aspects of their training data. This is actually a feature, it's not a bug. This is something we want. They can memorize chunks and, and, and bring those chunks back out when they're prompted the right way. It's not that different from a human, right? I mean, when a human goes and reads a book, they go and cite passages, right? Um, so this is a good thing, but, what that means is that if you're in a banking context or an intelligence, um, you know, U.S. intelligence community, you can't use a model that was trained on Reddit. It can have all kinds of junk in there that could regurgitate when you don't want it to. Um, and so you need to have some control over the data provenance. And so you want to create a model that's safe, that's clean uh, for these different purposes. And I think that's really important for things like medical uh, applications, right? I, I don't want something that was trained on you know, some misinformation that came from the internet, right? It might be good in terms of syntax of language, but not good in terms of content. So this kind of becomes very important. Uh, another aspect is 
the way every company has to work in their in their specific field is that they have to be able to compete with their uh, with the other players there. They compete by maybe gathering new kinds of data, by driving different kinds of experiences to their users, their customers. So there's a differentiation that has to happen here. When they build their own data sets, they actually want to bring out unique insights that their competitors potentially don't have. So using the same model from everybody else doesn't get you that. You're kind of building on the same foundation. You're never going to have something that's that different. Um, you can fine tune and you can do some stuff around that, but you can only change the model so much. Um, and I'd say the other, the last one, which is uh, much more of a practical consideration is that performance and speed of smaller models is just far superior. So, um, you know, uh, Codex, the code completion neural network that, that's behind uh, the GitHub code completion tool is about a 12 billion parameter model. Could you go bigger? Sure, you probably get better performance, but the problem is then it becomes too slow. It doesn't give you the outputs while you're typing. So I think this, this is why it, it makes sense to actually build smaller models that are potentially much more performant. And so I think we're gonna see this whole universe of there will be some large models that do a lot of different things and they will be useful for some set of tasks. But I actually think the long, much longer tail is gonna be served by smaller models built on, on data sets that are clean, curated and, uh, and become experts at a particular domain. Seems like the, the other consideration is just margins, right? If you have to run inference through OpenAI every time you, you want to respond to a customer, um, you know, that can get expensive. And I, I saw some, some uh, estimates that ChatGPT costs about, you know, $1 per, per query or one cent per query response and inference, which one cent doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, when you get to scale, like that can be cost prohibitive and expensive. Um, and so it seems like that's, that's another consideration as well that tilts towards, um, both smaller models and also, you know, owning your own model. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is something that we're working on at, at Mosaic is, uh, you know, building inference pipelines beyond the training that are basically, um, you know, charged on a compute basis, on a compute hour basis, not on a, uh, uh, API call basis. And I think. That idea made a lot of sense, especially when it was very difficult to build your own models and have anything that's even close in performance. But as that gap closes, it makes more sense to potentially own it for all the reasons we just talked about. So I think being able to train small GPT models like that um, is going to be a competitive advantage. It's going to be commoditized and productized and someone should do it.